We are wheeling and dealing our way into a new week as a flood of mergers and spin-offs hit the market this Monday. Will that be enough to spin investor sentiment back around after a two-week dip? The Federal Reserve and other central banks will have something to say about that later this week. And why are America's biggest tech companies cozying up to India's Reliance Industries, inside the conglomerate that has everyone from Alphabet to Amazon opening their checkbooks? And how are individual investors like us supposed to make sense of the great dislocation between markets and the economy? We'll spend a few good minutes with Charles Schwab's chief investment strategist, Liz Ann Saunders. And it may only be September, but Halloween could come early as quadruple witching is brewing at the end of the week. Why that could scare up more volatility for the markets. But have no fear, fellow investors. You are on the Investopedia Express, and I'm your host, Caleb Silver. Welcome to the program. Here are a few quick headlines to start your week. ByteDance, the Chinese owner of social video app TikTok, has chosen Oracle to be TikTok's U.S. technology partner. Oracle will take a significant stake in the business, which leaves Microsoft and Walmart, among others, out of the deal for the popular app. The White House had imposed a September 20th deadline for the sale to a U.S.-controlled firm, or it would have banned the app's use in the United States, and that would have ticked my teenage daughters off. Pfizer CEO said Sunday that the pharma giant should know if its experimental COVID-19 vaccine works by the end of October, and if approved, it could be distributed in the U.S. by the end of the year. Separately, AstraZeneca says it will resume testing for its COVID-19 vaccine here in the U.S. this week. It had paused testing because of adverse effects on a patient being treated with the vaccine in the U.K. earlier this month. Chipmaker NVIDIA has agreed to buy Arm Holdings, a designer of microchips for mobile phones from SoftBank, in a deal worth $40 billion. Now, if you don't know who Arm is, open up your Android or iPhone and you'll see that Arm design chip in action. It designs the architecture used in chips in most mobile phones, including the Qualcomm chip used in most Androids, as well as the Apple iPhone. Gilead Sciences is acquiring biotech company Immunomedics in a $21 billion deal that will expand Gilead's availability of cancer treatments. The deal will provide Gilead access to Immunomedics FDA-approved treatment for some forms of breast cancer. Two big things we're watching this week, following the worst week for U.S. tech stocks since March. Will sentiment continue to shift away from big technology stocks after the Nasdaq corrected 10% off its recent highs last week? The biggest stocks, and we're talking about Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook, all fell 5% or more last week. Now, given the size of their market caps, as they go, so goes the overall market. Just last week, the popular QQQ ETF called the Qs from Invesco, which contains the biggest tech stocks on the market, plus Tesla, Starbucks, and Costco, saw $4.8 billion in net outflows. That's the most on record for that ETF, and it's been around since 2002. Options activity, which we talked a little bit about last week, is raging among big tech stocks as traders bet on their future direction. Option volume in single-stock equities averaged a record 18.4 million contracts a day in August, which is up about 80% from the average monthly volume during 2019, according to the CBOE. The most activity surrounds Apple and Tesla options. You can expect those stocks and many of the other most widely held and traded to be very volatile for at least the next month. Intense volatility does not always produce great returns. Also on the radar this week, a few big central bank meetings to pay attention to. On Wednesday, both the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Bank of Japan announced interest rate decisions, followed by the Bank of England on Thursday. Now, don't expect any movement on interest rates since most are at, near, or below zero. Instead, listen closely to what central bankers say about their quantitative easing or bond-buying programs. 
Consider this. Central banks around the world have spent $1.4 billion an hour buying government and corporate bonds since the pandemic was declared in March. Central banks now own 40% of Japanese bonds and 14% of U.S. treasuries, according to Bank of America. The ECB, the European Central Bank, pledged to continue its bond buying program last week, and this week we'll hear whether the U.S. Federal Reserve plans to continue its $80 billion of monthly bond buying of government and corporate bonds and bond ETFs. If you're still wondering why global equity markets just experienced the shortest bear market in history, look no further than this unprecedented spending by central banks who have propped up stocks by laying the safety net under bonds. Reliance Industries, India's largest public company by market value and its most profitable, has been in the headlines lately as the company has been taking on investments from Alphabet's Google and Facebook for its geo-platform subsidiary. Last week, Amazon was reportedly offered a $20 billion stake in Reliance's retail business. Now, for many U.S. investors, Reliance isn't exactly a household name. But around the world, especially in Asia, it looms large. Deb D'Souza, our editor in India and my partner on the Express Morning Newsletter every day, joins me now to talk about Reliance, the family behind it, and these latest investments from America's tech giants. Deb, welcome to the Express. Hi, happy to be here. Good to have you on the audio version of our newsletter here. Now, Reliance started out as a textile company, much like Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. It still has a textile business, but it's teeny like Berkshire Hathaway. It's got vast operations, Deb. What are its biggest businesses and how do people in India interact with it like on a daily basis? Right. I mean, Reliance over here is kind of omnipresent. Most people will interact with it in some way on a daily basis. Their core businesses are really refining oil and gas. But in the last couple of years, they sort of pivoted to customer-focused retail and telecom, which is why all of you are hearing about them now with all of these big investments. These are some very big companies. And this is just recent news. Intel is already in there. Some of the biggest private equity firms in the world have big investments in Reliance and all of its multiple platforms. Now, the company is controlled by the Ambani family. Am I saying that right? Right. All right. Mukesh Ambani, he's the chairman. He's a larger-than-life figure over there. He's been the chairman for quite a while. Tell me more about Mukesh and the Ambani family and their very big presence over there. Reliance was started by Thirubhai Ambani back in the late 1950s. And he's sort of legendary. Like the Reliance story is sort of folklore here in India. He was famous for sort of being able to spot arbitrage opportunities even before Reliance. He caused a coin shortage in Yemen when he realized the silver in the coin was worth more than the currency. And they've been at this for several generations. Now, Geo Platforms, this is the shiny object in Reliance's portfolio. It's got Google's in there. It's got Facebook, among others. What is it that all of these big megatech companies want with Geo Platforms beyond the 1.3 billion people in India that may be connected to IT services ultimately? Right. So you can't really talk about Geo Platforms before going back to telecom, which is the geo carrier, which is the biggest in India right now. It really won over customers with very low prices, almost free data for a long time. And geo platforms is this ecosystem of apps. So you have apps where you can read the news, there's geo meet, sort of like what Zoom looks like. And these can only be run with geo SIM cards. And geo now has a user base of 400 million people with its carrier. It's this huge ecosystem. And India is a huge growth market. About 500 million people haven't come online yet. So this is where those companies see growth. We will have you back on the Express again. And of course, every morning, Deb and I have the Express newsletter that you can sign up for on investopedia.com. Deb, thanks for being with us. Great. Thanks for having me. 
It is an honor and a delight to welcome Lizanne Saunders to The Express for a few good minutes. She's a senior vice president and the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab and someone who I've been reading and watching for a very long time in financial media. She always has great insights on the markets and the economy and how they interact and what this actually means for the individual investor. Lizanne, welcome to The Express. Well, thank you, Caleb, and thank you for such a kind introduction. I appreciate it and happy to be here. So I read all your commentaries and your whole team's commentaries when they come out on the Schwab blog. And you wrote this in your last one. You said you, you concluded in late August with the following. I worry about the signs of froth in the market and among some behavioral measures of investor sentiment, not to mention traditional valuation metrics that are historically stretched. This is not an environment in which greed should dominate investment decisions, but instead one for discipline around diversification and periodic rebalancing. As usual, Lizanne, you're prescient. Markets have had a rough couple of weeks, but not everyone has been listening, especially a lot of new investors. How, how do we kind of break through to them that there is a reason that these valuations are going out of control right now? How do you get these messages across to people when they just see these gains and they can't resist? Well, so we're talking about a whole new class of, I wouldn't even call them investors, but kind of newly minted day traders. And that's where we're seeing the signs of, of speculative froth. And so far anyway, even though we had a 10% correction in the NASDAQ, a little bit less in the S&P, so far, most of the data suggests that those traders have sort of been beholden by this. And there's, they still have that kind of buy the dip mentality, press the optimistic bets. Sadly, they may take something more severe in the market to not remind these traders, because in many cases, this is not a reminder, this is a new experience, to get them to realize that there is a downside here. We haven't quite seen it, but it may take a, a little bit more uh, pain. The good news is that although we're seeing that speculative froth in pockets of the market, in the options market, by that sort of cohort of traders, we're not seeing that same kind of speculative froth and excess across sentiment indicators. So that's maybe something that's different versus, say, circa 99, 2000. And in fact, one area where longer term investors and maybe not newly minted traders tend to sort of traffic, for lack of a better word, is in mutual funds and ETFs. And we've actually had 12 weeks in a row of withdrawals. So that's in stark contrast, obviously, to what we're seeing by some of these day traders. And, and quite frankly, you know, the buy the dip mentality has been right. They've been rewarded. So there's a basis for their desire and willingness to kind of press the bets. That doesn't mean there might not be a reckoning at some point, though. Sure. We went from record high in the prior week to a 10% correction in the NASDAQ to back up. So we're in a period of volatility, and you are absolutely right about that. You mentioned that there's been outflows by institutional investors in the past 12 weeks. There's been outflows even before. Yeah, but even in individual investors, individual investors, not inclusive of the newly minted day trader crowd. <laughs> and institutional investors too, if you look at long-term yeah. mutual funds, equity mutual funds and ETFs. So the market, but the market keeps rising. And what I try to explain to people, but don't do as good a job as you and, and your team is that it's about 10 or 11 stocks driving the market higher because their market caps are so heavy because so many people have piled into them. That's why your markets are recognized, not because it's this broad-based recovery in equity markets that is driven in part by the economic news, which is someone, something I would love to ask you about. We can say this a million times, and I've heard you say it, I've said it a million times, the economy and the stock market, not the same thing. Sometimes they do walk hand in hand and are reflections of one another, not at this point in time. 
That said, how can we continue to see record highs for, for equity prices, even though we're maybe in a little bit of a choppy period, while the economy is so distressed? Here's what's interesting, and you mentioned this at the start of that question. The market is historically incredibly narrow. So at the recent highs, I don't know exactly the day, but because we had a couple of days where you're hitting new highs, on a year-to-date basis, the five largest names in, in cap terms in the S&P were up 48%. The other 495 names were down 2%. So yes, those names at making up almost 25% of the index are powerful enough to drive the indexes to all-time highs, but here's the other side of that story. That actually may reflect to some degree what's going on in the economy. So on the surface, it appears that there's this disconnect with all-time highs and still you know, an 8.5% unemployment rate and uh, economic data that is choppy at best. But when it's only five names, which are arguably not just the survivors in this environment, but the thrivers in this environment, if you just think about how often in the course of a day, especially in the sort of the COVID world, that we're living in the ecosystem of some of those names, the fundamental strength of those names I think is kind of in support of what's going on in the economy. A lot of of pain and suffering by kind of the masses and a relatively small subset of winners. So just looking under the hood may actually connect the dots between what's going on in the market and going on in the economy. Fascinating. So an income inequality also in capital markets also happening in the streets of, of America right now Absolutely. with rapid unemployment and worse for people of lower incomes. And that's the sad thing about this pandemic is it's exacerbating. There's such a disproportionate impact economically on whether it's you know minorities or lower income, their ability to still sort of function and how do they keep their kids educated, all of those issues. Sadly, those problems are being exacerbated. By right. this. They were already appearing, but this really blew them wide open, as many people have said. We survey our readers. We've been surveying them throughout the crisis about what they're doing with their money, their sentiment, their anxiety, where they're buying, what they're selling, their bullishness, their bearishness. Our most recent survey, which we wrapped a couple of weeks ago, their main concern, Lizanne, was the election, which is something that I did not expect from our U.S. audience, even though they're very aware. But they thought that would be the biggest factor impacting returns. And they do expect returns to be lower going forward for the next few months. And we're still in the middle of this pandemic. Does that surprise you? And do elections generally make a very big difference in terms of the investing landscape? It doesn't surprise me, especially in this environment. In fact, some of the intricacies of what's been going on in the options market and with the VIX, you know, volatility index is actually driven by concerns about the election. So again, it's fairly technical, but part of the reason why volatility was going up while the stock market was, which is not normally the case, is that in particular, the October VIX futures were trading at a very elevated level because of an, an election risk. So as you came closer to the September expiration, you had to have that convergence. So we were, we were seeing rising volatility largely because it was being priced in the October volatility futures, almost all tied to the election. It's also somewhat common for a less election risk to be seen more clearly in the market in the post-Labor Day environment, e- even in a, quote, normal election year, which 
which of course this is not. Very interesting stuff. All right, you are a great sharer of information on Twitter and through your blog, and and you're you really love your charts. But what's your go to chart or series of charts when you on a Monday morning you get up to go to work? What are you always checking? What's the go-to for Liz Ann Saunders? Well, I guess it depends on whether it's related to the market or the economy. In terms of the economy, I always think it's important to look at the key leading indicators, of which, of course, the stock market is one. So that's where there is that crossover. I think in this unique environment, there are some sort of newly minted leading indicators that I think are sort of fascinating to keep an eye on. A lot of the mobility data actually tracking in a very short-term basis what we're seeing in terms of movement. And that's especially important in this sort of post-lockdown environment. So in terms of the economy, leading indicators broadly, some of the unique leading indicators that are tied to this pandemic. From a stock market perspective, it's the sentiment data, both the Behavioral sentiment measures, as well as the attitudinal sentiment measures, are always top of mind for me when I'm looking at what's going on in the market. And on the mobility piece, I know your colleague Jeff Kleintop likes to share a lot of the mobility coming out of Europe and major cities around the world. We've just built the New York City Recovery Index, tracking similar metrics for New York City with New York One that we put out on a weekly basis. So watching the way we move, what we spend, where we're going, and how we spend it is a fascinating way to know kind of where we're going. And also search activity, you know, Google Trends, what people have top of mind. So you know, through technology and all things digital, we have access to this information that we haven't had access to before. And it's particularly crucial given the unique nature of this crisis. Absolutely. Our anxiety index, which does track fear-based terms and traffic to those terms, has been screaming lately. But what it's screaming about is the fascinating part, right? It's not screaming about the stock market. It's screaming about personal finance. It's screaming about bankruptcy, foreclosure, the things that are affecting us personally. And that gives us a sense of what people are actually worried about, which does make sense. You know where it started our out as an investing dictionary, for lack of a better word, 22 years ago. So we're built on financial terms. What's your favorite financial term, Lizanne? and why? What is the one you always come back to? Can I give you a, a line um, or a phrase as opposed to a term? Absolutely. So Caleb, you know this one. It's by the late, great Sir John Templeton, who I had the great honor of meeting on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser when I was a panelist that night. And he was the uh, special guest. He was in his 90s at the time. But one of his famous lines was, bull markets are born on pessimism, they grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. And what I think is so compelling about that is that from a term perspective, there's no term in there that has anything to do with earnings, valuation, GDP, uh, PE ratios. It's all about psychology. And I think there's no better a description of how market cycles unfold than that. Lastly, your most important lesson for new investors, people who are getting into the market for the first time or just started this year, what would you tell them right now as they walk through those gates? So maybe I'll answer it by saying that one of the most common questions I get often by the financial media, especially in a volatile period, is are you telling investors to get in or get out? And I think there always is this get in, get out mentality. Should I be in? Should I be out? I think the most important lesson tied to that is all or nothing decisions, get in, get out, that's not investing. That's gambling on moments in time. And investing should never be about gambling on moments in time. Investing should always be a process over time. 
and the most successful investors in history viewed it as a process over time, not as a function of a moment in time. And I think if you have that mentality and don't think of investing as when do I get in, when do I get out, you're almost guaranteed on a path of greater success than trying to, to time the market, especially in all or nothing terms. Liz Ann Saunders, the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. We really appreciate you being on The Express and wish you well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. It's time for terminology when we get to explain a financial term or definition that is likely to be in the headlines this week. And this week's term can be downright terrifying. Coming up on Friday, a rare quadruple witching day. Now, quadruple witching refers to a date on which stock index futures, stock index options, stock options, and single stock futures expire simultaneously. While stock option contracts and index options expire on the third Friday of every month, all four asset classes expire simultaneously on the third Friday of March, June, September, and December. That means this Friday, folks. Quadruple witching days usually see heavy trading volume in part due to the offsetting of these existing futures and options contracts that are profitable. Options traders that have made money betting on the future direction of a security get out of their positions when those options expire on the third Friday of every month. Now, since we also have stock index options and single stock futures also expiring on a quadruple witching day like the one coming up this Friday, there will be even more activity. As we mentioned earlier, options activity was 80% higher in August than the same period a year ago. The U.S. stock market is down 5 to 7% since the end of August as options activity has been sizzling for contracts that expire at the end of October. What comes right after the end of October? Oh, just the U.S. elections. So brace yourselves for more volatility ahead, folks, and beware the witches this Friday. Hey, folks, we're opening up our terminology segment to all of our listeners. If you have a term or concept you want explained on the show, email us at theexpress at investopedia.com or message us on Twitter or Instagram, and we'll do it on a future episode. Thanks for joining us this week on The Express. We appreciate your comments, your feedback, and your ratings. Please keep them coming. Stay smart, stay healthy, and keep your balance this week. I'm Caleb Silver, and we'll talk again soon.